Um, so anyway, I wanted to um, just ex remind you we've had some different, um, it seems like every day you wake up, it's National Something Day. Did you ever notice that these days? National this, national that. But anyway, about six weeks ago, I just wanted to let you know that it was National Superhero Day. Okay, National Superhero Day. April 28th, for those of you who are keeping track. I'm going to put it on your calendar. I want you to just take for a moment and think, how do you define a superhero? What's the definition of a superhero? So there's one that I came across that wasn't too bad. It says a superhero is a person who's using what they have been given to help people. A person who's using what they have to be given to help people. So what I want you to do right now is obviously when you see this menagerie of a picture, it's not a, I don't think all of them that you can think about, but I want you to just turn around to somebody nearby you and let them know who is your favorite superhero. And if you don't have one, I can give you one, okay? <laughs> okay, I believe this could go on for hours. We didn't necessarily give the rationale behind that. Um, and as you know, we've had many movies even now where the superheroes are pitted against one another. There's all kinds of, there's no shortage of plots and there's twists. But I do want to ask an interesting question. I think one of the questions that often may come to your mind as we begin to share superheroes is, who is the world's most popular superhero? So, we'll, so actually there was a survey done. A company did some recent analysis on this. Not a survey, but they, they looked over the past year's search data on Google and according to them, number five, I'll give them in reverse order, Hulk with 1.8 million average monthly Google searches, Captain America with 1.9 million average monthly Google searches, Superman, number three, with two million average monthly Google searches, you know who's, Batman, number two, average, 3.4 million average monthly Google searches, and coming in at number one with 5.1 million average monthly Google searches, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. So, but I wanted just to think, there's a great quote that they have about Spider-Man I want to bring to your attention. With great power comes what? Great responsibility. Anybody knew who said that to him? His uncle, right? And in one movie, actually, the to the ant did. So it's a little bit of a twist. But this whole idea was, with great power comes great responsibility. So what we want to talk about this morning is what I believe the greatest superhero of all time. That is, give it up, Suzanne, here we go. My man, Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus is not only a superhero who just helps people, but he saves them. Specifically, Jesus is the one who saves people like me and like you from being separated from God for eternity. Today we're going to look together at how Jesus is the victorious divine warrior who will one day come back again and use his power to destroy all those who oppose him. The big idea for today is that Jesus is the one who has the responsibility to bring judgment and hope for us all. We're in a sermon series from the book of Isaiah focused on the God we can trust. And we've looked at the messages from about, about that in the book of Isaiah. Pastor Brian has been sharing how the book of Isaiah is like a mini Bible on its own. It has 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. But this week I want you to think about a different twist on that. I want you to think about these 66 chapters as almost like 66 photos in a photo album, in one of the photo albums you have. 
And each of the photos is something about the prophecy about Jesus and what he's going to do. And remember, these photos were taken 700 years before Jesus even walked the earth. And they cover his life from birth to the end of time, even both his first coming and we're going to look at this, this morning, his second coming. There are prices collection here in Isaiah chapter 63, we're going to turn our attention this morning, is another important portrait. It's a portrait of him coming again. Last week, Pastor Brian shared from Isaiah on the importance of the power of prayer. He challenged us with three ways our house can raise our level of prayer. He encouraged us to pray more, to expect more when we pray, and also to, sorry, to watch, and also to expect more when we pray. I hope this past week has been one where your prayer life has been boosted, or maybe even kick-started. And we're going to encourage you in that prayer life again here when we look at the end of our passage. So today, I want you to turn your attentions right now to Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 together as we look at Jesus in this role as a victorious divine warrior. Again, the one who has a responsibility to bring judgment and hope for us all. Next week, though, Pastor Brian's going to be preaching for the remainder of Isaiah. It'll be our last message in the, in the series. He's going to start with the remaining parts of Isaiah 63, take us through the end. And he's going to be talking about the new heaven and the new earth. So don't miss that. So again, turn with your Bible, with me in your Bible, your Bible app, to Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verses 1 through 6. Starting in verse 1. Uh, wait, before I do this, I should mention, um, and I'm going to mention afterwards, but it's probably good to mention ahead of time. Many of these uh, superhero movies that we like to watch, do you know what the most common rating is these days? How do they get rated? Are they G? No, they're not G. Are they PG? No. PG-13? Yeah, that's where they seem to settle in, okay? Part of that is because R-rated movies, you have to have to actually get permission to get a ticket. So what they've done is expanded PG-13 to be quite a lot, of, a lot of violence and gore and other things like that. I'm going to share with you, these six verses are really the modern PG-13 version of what you're going to hear. Somewhere between, I would say, Wolverine and Deadpool is really what you should expect <laughs> in these verses. So just kind of be ready. Um, and then when we walk through them, there is a seriousness to them. And I, I just want to make sure that when we talk about some of the, the blood and the, the spattering and, and, and things like that, and the staining of clothing with the blood, that you understand that there's some imagery here that, that God is trying to help us understand more about himself and more about what's to come. So um, this is the Lord, word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with garments stained crimson? <coughs> Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save, as we sang. Why are your garments red like those of one treading in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the, from the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down with, in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all of my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me was to, re, to, to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the, out on the ground. Pretty heavy. But we're going to walk through these verses together and kind of understand what they mean and then see how they apply to ourselves. Again, some of this is going to get a little PG-13. Um, so just walk with me. So in verse 1, it starts out with Isaiah asking, who is coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with this garment stained crimson? So these first verses of the book of Isaiah 63, in, in chapter 63 rather, form a war victory song. So if you think about many of these things that we watch, it's almost like a, a Braveheart type song that's coming out here. 
right, this victory song in answer to a plea that really came from the previous chapter, Isaiah 62, where they're saying that we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and watching for this warrior to come and save us. The Israelites were in captivity and they were calling the Lord to deliver them. So we pick it up here from what chapter 62 describes. There's a watchman, as Brian mentioned, who's on the lookout. And he sees someone coming from Bozrah, which was the capital of Edom. Edom was the kind of the hub of the non-believing world. And they had not only taken over the Israelites, but they were pretty much living a life that uh, had no God in it. They were living, they were in charge of their own lives. So on the distance, that's what the watchman sees. He sees a person coming whose clothes are blood-stained and is striding forward in this greatness of strength. So the, the blood stain is almost like this, this color. I'm wearing almost like a, a dark crimson. And then this person of mine is, is Jesus. And he cries out, it is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Now this term mighty has been used earlier throughout the book of Isaiah. Um, and if you think of even superheroes, does anybody remember superhero with the name mighty? Mighty Mouse, that's right, Mighty Mouse. <laughs> So this concept of mighty, right, is something we've been thinking about for a long time, but it really started way back in the beginning of, of you can go back to Genesis, but really in here in Isaiah, we're going to trace it through Isaiah a little bit. In Isaiah chapter 1, it starts out describing Jesus as the mighty one of Israel who will vent his wrath on his foes and avenge himself of all of his enemies. So it's not just here at the end of Isaiah, but you can even go back to chapter 1. It says, Isaiah 1, 24, it says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. We go to Isaiah chapter 9. Now what's interesting, chapter 9, we actually walk through this as a, as a congregation. It describes Jesus with several titles. And you might remember this verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It continues in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus declares himself as the mighty one, saying, By the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I have removed the boundaries of the nations. I have plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I have subdued their kings. And then in Isaiah 60, which just precedes this by a few chapters, in verse 16 it says, Jesus says, Then you will know that I, the Lord of your Savior, your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob, so I hope you get that when Jesus talks about mighty to save, this is something that Isaiah has been portraying about Jesus throughout the whole book of Isaiah. Now when we say mighty to save, this could actually even be Jesus' theme song, I would say. Does anybody remember we mentioned Spider-Man, right? Anybody know Spider-Man's theme song? Spider-Man, Spider-Man, what? Does whatever a spider can, right? Catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes Spider-Man, right? But in our case, Jesus' song that Max out the Slither is mighty to save. You want to say that connects with him. And what's interesting is this mighty to save is one not only that started out way back when the early promises that God gave to Abraham that he's going to save his people. And then it continues here in Isaiah. But even it moves forward. There's a very famous verse that Zeph Zephaniah, roughly about 50 years after uh, Isaiah spoke, in Zephaniah 3.17, he describes Jesus the same way, saying, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. But this is what's great. And Max talked about this balance here this morning. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. So there's the wrath and the vengeance as well as the love. They're balanced together. Verse 2 continues with asking the one coming about. It says, why are your garments red like those of treading the winepress? Jesus replies in verse 3 saying, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. 
I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Then their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all of my clothing. In these verses, Jesus is declaring that his garments are stained with the blood of Israel's enemies, which he will trample underfoot. And really, this idea of, of just kind of stomping, okay, is really, if you think about, uh, we actually had some friends over last night, we talked about how to make wine. And you might remember that wine is where you stomp on the grapes and pretty much the color comes out, as well as the juice. But here, this stomping in a wine press is one where it's treading down, pressing down, because you can't prepare wine for drinking without the grapes first being trodden and pressed. But if you think about this concept, you move forward in Jesus' life and he comes to the end of his life. Well, how does he describe himself and his blood? He uses it in the same way. He says, you must drink the cup, right? But he says he would be trodden down and pressed down and drink the cup that he's, his body is going to be broken for us in the same way the grapes were crushed for the wine. The Apostle John, in his description of Jesus as a heavenly warrior in Revelation 19, uses the same language. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On him are many crowns. He, was the name, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And here it comes. He is dressed in a robe dripped with blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming in out of his mouth as a sharp sword, which was to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And look what happens here. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is the one who treads the winepress. He is the one who overcomes the enemies. He is the one whose blood, their blood is spattered on his garments. We continue to see this. Jesus further explains this in verse 4. For him, it was the day of vengeance. The year for him to redeem had come. Now this day of vengeance and year of vengeance are not at odds with each other. They actually complement each other very nicely and become a union. In three places, the day of vengeance is contrasted with the year of his recompense. And this is to show that his infinite mercy... His mercy is infinite with us, very long, and how short-lived, comparatively speaking, is his anger. It's not hard to think of vengeance when you think of these, these hero movies, right? Basically, you have this conflict in the movie, right? And in the end, the hero comes back to save the day and make things right. And that's what you're seeing here. This day of vengeance is one where Jesus will come and make things right again. But it's a mere day of vengeance. And then when you talk about the year of redemption, it's an entire year of being redeemed. It's a, these are poetic phrases that are being used here by Isaiah to really talk about time. And fittingly, God uses the picture of a day in communicating his vengeance and the expression of a year in expressing his grace to us. Now, Jesus talks about this in terms of what's going to happen at the end in his own life. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus tells of his coming again. He says, Then will appear the sign of man in heaven, and then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the day of vengeance is something we look forward to as Matt encouraged us, but it's also something where, where people who are not ready is something that they're going to mourn. In verses 5 and 6, as we finish this section out, we see that Jesus said that he looked and there was no one to help. He was appalled that no one gave him support. He continues saying that his own arm achieved salvation, his own wrath sustained him. Why was this? Jesus was alone. Because Israel was unfaithful. 
Just like we're unfaithful to God and we break his commandments, there's none of us who can save ourselves. So Jesus was left alone to do the victory. No one was righteous enough to stand beside Jesus to do that. On the cross, it was Jesus alone who achieved our salvation, and he triumphed over the principalities and powers, and he made a show of them openly. He has overcome the world, the flesh, the powers of darkness, and stands forever between us and our former oppressors. He is the one who trampled the nations in anger. And he continues with this winepress imagery here in these last verses, where God crushes both his enemies and here floods them with his wrath. When we read these verses, we can at times think about some deep questions. One of the hard questions that we run into is just, how is it that, and people ask this question often, how is it that a loving God can send people to hell or allow people to go to hell? The reality is, is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. The reality is, is that people choose to go there. Throughout their lives, there's a wide path and a narrow path. And we're made aware of those paths, and we make those choices every day of which path we're going to follow. So it's not that, basically, if you think back to Spider-Man, what do we say? With great power comes what? Great responsibility. And so what has God done? God has given each of us free will to decide. So really what we need to be thinking is, with free will comes also great responsibility. And we have a responsibility to decide about what we know. And that's what's so sad. Many people we know and love do not want to acknowledge that there's a God to whom they will have to give an account. But rather, what they prefer to be is their own God. As C.S. Lewis put it, sin is a human being saying to God throughout their life, go away and leave me alone. And hell's God answered, and God says, you may have your wish. You want to be without me? You can do so forever. Few people specifically choose to go to hell, but they do, over the course of their lives, choose that road I mentioned that leads them there. The wide road Jesus described that leads to destruction. Over, their time, over time, their hearts become hardened to the love of God, and their ears become deaf to the voice of God. They refuse to humble themselves before the grace of God, and in the end, they refuse to receive the rescue that's found for all of us in the gospel. C.S. Lewis points out the fact that when people come to choose the road to hell in this life, they begin to take on the qualities that will be confirmed, intensified, and made permanent when they reach their final destination. Again, God doesn't send anyone there. It's never his design to send people there. It breaks his heart to see people made in his own image make deliberate choices to go that way. That's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross in my place, in your place, to be the gap between sinful people and his Holy Father. They say that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. I really like how Greg Laurie puts it. He says, if you end up in hell, you'll practically have to climb over Jesus to get there. And even the scriptures talk about this. Ezekiel 33.11 says that the sovereign Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he would prefer that they turn from their ways and live for him. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says that God our Savior wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we look at this you know, really hard passage about what's happening with the coming judgment and hope, and how do we apply it to our lives? As I mentioned at the onset, the big idea is Jesus is the one who has the responsibility to bring judgment and hope for all of us. So if you've never been right with Jesus, if you've never made right with him, today is the day. God's plan of salvation is not like some sort of Marvel endgame, you know, ending that you have to figure out really what happened and who died and what's going on and who's coming back. It's very simple. Paul, the Apostle Paul explains it very clearly in Romans chapter 1 when he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to who? 
everyone who believes. And the Apostle Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why? Why is he patient? It says, not wanting anyone to perish, but who? Everyone to come to repentance. Yes, everyone. So today is the day. May you be part of the everyone. Now, for those of us who have accepted the Lord, have, have been saved, have received this gift of salvation, um, what does it mean for us? What do we do with this passage? Well, the first thing, I just want to bring you back to last week. Uh, Pastor Brian talked about revivals. He talked about prayer. But at the end of the day, it's how do we pray for those people in our lives, the people where we work, where we live, where we pray. I pray last week was this created in you a renewed sense of urgency to pray. And I just want to pile on that message. Um, Paul, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, says his heart's desire in prayer is that his family and friends would be saved. And that's what we want to do here. But actually, as we know, whenever we talk about this topic of the judgment that Jesus will bring, um, he also brings a sense of sadness, not just excitement. The reality is Jesus coming to judge is, is a somber one. It's sad news for, for us sometimes. Um, and I'll tell you a story. So I have an opportunity to play in a couple of men's soccer leagues. One of the men's soccer leagues I play in, there's a, there's a man there who, who um, showed up and shared with us that his son had recently committed suicide. And uh, he just wanted a hug from me. And so at that time, I, I just, you know, neither my friend nor his son, I knew were not really ready for this judgment that Jesus has that for the last day anybody's going to have, that his son experienced when his life ended. And my heart was heavy. And so we all know people whose, whose lives come to what are seemingly premature ends, and our hearts are heavy for them. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. So what happens in your heart when you hear about Jesus' upcoming judgment? I, I hope that it would make it heavy sometimes when you think about your family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, or others in your life who are not ready. We want them to all come along with us. Um, it's like being able to go on vacation and want everybody to come with you, you know? So what I want you to do is, um, even though maybe tears will well up in your eyes when you think about them, um, what I want to let you know is that there's hope. There is hope out there. Uh, one of my favorite songwriters, Robin Marks, puts it this way. He said, all I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless, now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. And he continues, he said, Now my heart's desire is to know, you, to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I cannot earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die, there is no greater thing. So how do we pray for those that we love, that we want? Again, the Apostle Paul gives us a really nice example in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, when he prayed for God to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. I recently had the privilege of going to the eye doctor. I do that every year. I have uh, glasses that are quite thick and then contact lenses that are probably the highest power we ever see. So typically what they do is when you go to the eye doctor, for those of you who haven't been, you're really supposed to go without your glasses or contacts on, and you sit down, and 
he puts up the screen and he puts up like this huge letter E and he's like, can you see that? I'm like, no, I can't see that. <laughs> it's like, really? I'm like, yes. And he's like, okay. Well, because they usually start like 20 whatever and then they, they bring in the biggest letter and I still can't even see it. So that's what Paul's talking about when he wants us to pray that God will open their eyes so they can see. They can't even see this biggest letter that's there. And it is until I get corrected vision um, in my case, it's like 2750, 2800. So what an average person can see at 20 feet, at 800 feet away, I have to be 20 feet close enough to see it. So that's what God does. He opens our eyes so we can see his truth about the salvation that he provided. So the first thing is just, if today is the day, the second thing is just to pray, as Brian encouraged us last week. The next one is I want us to get ready. Uh, we've had the privilege in our church of having several people get married recently, and there was wedding showers and things like that. And, going to weddings. Uh, I had the privilege of officiating my first wedding last year um, with Star and Alex, and that was a real honor. But I do remember even when Phyllis got ready for our wedding day and each of the brides got ready, they spent a lot of time getting ready. So you get your hair done that day, maybe you get your nails done, you get your toenail, whatever, whatever all you're gonna get, in, facial. I mean, there's a lot of preparation that goes into getting a bride ready for a groom. Um, and why, why do they spend so much time um, because they want to look their best for their special day, right? So if we know that our special day is coming, Jesus is coming again, how is it that we want to prepare ourselves for him? If he's mighty to save, preparing for us in eternity in heaven, will soon carry us there, despite of these adversities we have right now, how is it that we want to get ourselves ready for him? And again, Paul gives us a clue into this. He says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 14, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to who? All people, again. Please note the everyone and all is here. And what does this grace of God do? It teaches me and us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when and where? In this present age. While we what? While we wait. As Brian talked last week, as we wait for the blessed hope what the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who what? Gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify himself, a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. So let's get ready. Let's get ourselves ready for when he comes again. And the last thing is, what do we do in the meantime? How do we hang in there in the meantime? Well, I would say let's go back to Jesus' theme song, Mighty to Save, right? When we know that he's mighty to save, and what it allows us to do is have a renewed sense of hope. We can be confident that God can accomplish his purposes in our lives, in the here and now, as well as in eternity. So I want to ask you today, what in your life is too difficult for you? What is the one thing that you think he's just not mighty enough to overcome? What is that circumstance, person, thought, memory you find yourself just struggling with and don't have enough endurance and perseverance to overcome it? For me, there's a several things that are out there that I wrestle with kind of week in and week out. And by going back to this passage and not only looking forward to his second coming, but also help me in the interim to say, you know what? I think I've had too small of a view of who God is and what he can do in my life. Because he himself suffered and he was tempted, he is able to come to my aid and be continually there when I'm tempted or tested. Because he's the one mighty to save, he's able to lift me out of a pit of despair, out of the mud, out of the mire, and out of the feet, and set my feet where? On him, the solid rock, and make my steps secure. We are from God and are overcoming 
people and circumstances, and indeed every obstacle who opposes Jesus, because Jesus is greater than he who is in the world, and he will overcome. Now, we actually started, I wanted to just go back as we wrap up, and we think about the superhero Jesus. Um, we talked about Spider-Man having this thing that kind of guided him, right, with great, respons- with great responsibility that he said. I want you to think about Jesus in terms of what was his kind of mantra, what was his mission. And it all started, we saw it in Matthew chapter 1, when he was born, it says, you were to give him the name Jesus. Why were they going to give him that name? It says, because he will save his people from his sins. Now we continue on in Jesus' life, and we see that Jesus describes his mission as one that he came to seek and save the lost. He says in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ first came as a sacrificial lamb of God to bring salvation to us all who believe in him. And we saw today how he's going to come again as the triumphant king of kings. And we read about this. Paul again gives us some guidance in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He said, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, meaning you and me. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. And then this is the verse, right? But God demonstrates his own love towards us. Why? Why? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So for Jesus, it's not with great power comes great responsibility like our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, but rather is with great love comes great sacrifice. And what should our response to that be? Again, we can look to Paul again, and he gives us that guidance in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus, what did he do? He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience. Peter talked about that, right? An example who are willing to, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to him, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to come to save us on the cross. We also thank you that you're sending Jesus again to come and to make things right and to bring hope and judgment. Lord, I thank you for um, that we don't have to experience that judgment because of what he's done for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you for the hope that awaits us for those of us who believe in him. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to encourage us and equip us to live for you. In your name.